China has arbitrarily detained Canadians Michael Spaver and Michael Kovrig, weaponized tariffs and trade, violated international law and human rights in Hong Kong, and continues to commit mass atrocities against the Uyghurs. Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by national security expert and professor Stephanie Carvin to discuss Canada's relationship with China. Professor Carvin also co-hosts the podcast Intrepid, focused on national security politics and law, and she's also prolific on Twitter, which is where I often look for her advice. Stephanie, thanks for joining me, and also congratulations on becoming a tenured professor. It's the best news in the worst times, so I'm very excited. (laughs) Before we get into the substance of the conversation, it was CSIS that you worked at. Yes, I was what's called a strategic analyst. And there's different kinds of analysts at the service. And, you know, great career. Happy to talk sometime about that if anyone's interested. These are the analysts from 60,000 feet. What are the big picture questions? Or if uh, a minister or someone needs a specific question answered, they would, uh, you know, come to us and we would we would write up an assessment as to what they needed. Or we would produce assessments on things that they think they needed. So one of the issues I worked on that was really popular in uh, 2012 the 2015 was actually foreign fighters. And uh, the Harper government back then was really interested in foreign fighters. So we were always producing numbers and different assessments on that. So that that was an example of what I did, uh, among other things. I, in undergrad, applied in their online portal and I didn't get any call back, email back, anything back. So you were much more worthy and successful and probably for good reason. Maybe they take me now. I'm not sure. But I, I, now I'm, you're a I'm jealous. Canada, I'm sure, as an MP. But that's <laughs> a whole other story. I'm, I'm jealous, though. Of, I, I think it, would, it must have been a very interesting experience, all things considered, and, and a different kind of public service. Now, we aren't talking about foreign fighters as much. Obviously, still an active conversation, especially when Minister Goodale was responsible for that file. And there was a bit of pressure about returning foreign fighters. But today... I would say the greatest part of the foreign policy conversation that we as parliamentarians are confronted with is on China. And we now have a Canada-China parliamentary committee established to focus on these kinds of issues. And we have China that has engaged in hostage diplomacy with the two Michaels, that has violated international law in relation to the national security law in Hong Kong, that is violating human rights on a regular basis, the Uyghurs and more, malicious cyber activity. There's so much to talk about. How would you frame the challenges that Canada faces vis-a-vis China? So it's really interesting that this is the turn of the conversation because it's just that when I was an analyst, the primary threat was really seen as the foreign fighter issue. And actually, we have seen the director of CSIS, who right now is David Vignon, he's come out in 2018 and gave a really remarkable speech and said, yes, terrorism, violent extremism is still the number one public safety threat to Canada. But really, the kind of national security threats that we're now increasingly worried about as a national security community are things like espionage, foreign influence, and malicious cyber activities, right? So there has been this really big shift in a very quick period of time. And, you know, the security services themselves are really trying to adjust. You have people who have spent their entire careers focused on terrorism, and we're now having to switch to kind of these broader, um, much more nebulous threats. And, you know, unfortunately, right now, China is one of those countries at the heart of those threats and imposing challenges to Canada. And when we look at core infrastructure in Canada in our telecommunications, one active conversation is Huawei, and we see 
our allies in the UK and United States be more forceful in pushing back against embracing Huawei in their networks? Is that a position that you think Canada should echo? To me, the Huawei issue is so interesting because it's at the heart of almost all of our challenges with a rising and increasingly what I would describe as aggressive China. In the first instance, it's trying to manage this growing geopolitical power. At the same time, you have an isolationist United States, especially under Trump, and the U.S. has become less predictable and China is kind of taking advantage of this. And Canada, to a certain extent, is caught in between these two countries. I mean, look, we're still very much on Team USA, just if only because of trade and geography and, and history and culture. But and hopefully I mean, more so after November. And <laughs> I, I could never uh, <laughs> say it, but absolutely, yes. Um, the, <laughs> um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is really the technological question with Huawei, which is there's been a lot of concern expressed that there could be so-called backdoors. Backdoors are kind of like little cracks in the foundation through which bugs could get through or through which a state could take advantage of. So there's these backdoors in Huawei technology, which would allow China to either spy on Canadians or on the other hand, that they would be able to even shut down our critical infrastructure. 5G, which could be a whole other podcast and and it's a fascinating issue, is really the technology that's going to power our future. And it's going to control things like uh, our highways. It's going to help us do surgeries, perhaps remotely. It's going to do all these different kinds of things. And there's some concern that if China has the capability to dominate or even turn the off switch on some of these technologies, it could really hurt us if it came to that. And then And the third question is really that of how should Canada be dealing with state-owned enterprises and state-championed enterprises? Huawei is not a state-owned enterprise. It is a private company, but there's a lot that suggests that it receives a lot of benefits from China. Certainly, President Xi has treated it as a champion. It sees it as like, you know, a model for the future China, this kind of high-tech dominating industry. And it's probably received a certain amount of state help or access to certain benefits, perhaps even state loans, that gives it an advantage that other companies like Nokia, Samsung simply don't have and allows them to dominate the market. I mean, there's a reason we talk about Nortel in the past tense. For me, this is the greatest challenge. And the reason is, you know, on the technical side, a lot of our communications encrypted. I actually think it's going to be harder to hack into a lot of these messages than than what's actually often portrayed in the media. I actually think it's this larger geoeconomic threat, which, you know, we often hear about geopolitics, but I'm going to use the term geoeconomics and stop me if I'm getting too nerdy. But basically, (laughs) this idea is that how How do you deal with these giant companies that may be serving state ends and are getting assistance, which can fundamentally alter the state of our economies and our markets? And in some cases, like with Huawei, something that's been very much in the news, China will take hostages on behalf of that company. So how should Canada be dealing with these companies? Or impose tariffs. And they have really weaponized our economic relationship in a serious way. So greater integration, especially for core infrastructure, seems like a bad idea if that is what they are willing to do. And it may not be state-owned, but certainly the Chinese government has gone to bat in a serious way through direct policy initiatives on behalf of the CFO. And they've been explicit now publicly in, in tying the arrest of the two Michaels 
to the detention of Huawei CFO. And so on that particular instance, I received some emails from constituents to say we should do a prisoner swap. I saw obviously in the news that a number of luminaries that I would think of as former liberal heavyweights or in one case, a former Supreme Court justice were calling for that same kind of swap. I think the prime minister landed in the right place to say we can't reward hostage diplomacy. You have greater expertise in in this area. Do you think that the prime minister landed in the right place? Yeah, I do. And I think Canadians saw and and, and appreciated what what he's saying. Look, to be honest, that letter that was signed, it wasn't just liberals or conservatives or NDPs on that letter. It was a multipartisan letter. And clearly they had thought a lot about who they wanted on that letter. And it didn't even include everyone who has called for some kind of prisoner exchange. I remember former industry minister and, and former deputy prime minister John Manley described it as a bridge of spies kind of swap, I believe a year ago. The issue with this is a number of problems. The first one is I understand why you would want to bring the two Michaels back. I'm so sympathetic to the families. I can't imagine what they're going through. And I think a lot of the people on that letter probably felt the same way. But there's a reason we have policies against paying money for kidnapping, right? It's that if you reward this kind of behavior, it makes Canadians target. Maybe the next time we turn a Chinese company down, or if a Chinese company or a state-owned enterprise is involved in illegal activity in Canada and we try to do something about it, more Canadians are taken hostage, right? Because it keeps working. This is the problem, right? It creates that moral hazard. And my big concern is that this is the way China's trying to use to circumvent the rule of law. Huawei will sit there and tell you all day long, look, we're, we're in Canada and we follow Canadian law. Maybe you do. But the fact is you are potentially serving the ends of a government which is willing to kidnap people on your behalf in order to circumvent that rule of law. And this is why I think we have to be so careful in, in, in how we go about this. I've always referred to the recent Trudeau government approach to China as the Tom Petty doctrine, because it's not escalation, but it's not backing down. So I call it the don't back down <laughs> doctrine, which I'm not sure all the, the young kids I teach these days get that, but trust me, it's a, good, it's a good one. There's no good short-term fix to this, because the, the immediate short-term fix, which would be this hostage exchange, which China has pretty much openly floated in its propaganda papers, Global Times, if we do that, it's going to happen again. This isn't even the first time Canada has had someone taken hostage. There was, of course, in, in 2014, the, the case of Sue Bin, who was an individual who was accused of hacking into and stealing um, plane designs in the United States. He was arrested in Canada to be extradited to the United States. And as a result, two Canadians were taken pretty much prisoner on bogus espionage charges, let's be honest, and weren't released until 2015. You know, this is something that could potentially keep happening, especially if we give in. And in some cases, they seem to be harming through short-term action, long-term geopolitical interests. And if I look at that kind of hostage diplomacy, it is true that the justice minister can weigh in intervene, I should say, in extradition proceedings and could have made a choice at some point in the proceeding, at any point in the proceeding, to send Meng home. But there's no way that's going to happen now that the two Michaels have effectively been kidnapped. By taking that action, they've almost taken the solution they wanted off the table from a practical point of view. And and then I look at their actions in Hong Kong. And for a country that had global vision of building up international influence, 
They have burned international influence to the ground in intervening in the context of a pandemic with a national security law and violating international law and obviously upsetting, and rightfully so, a legitimate upset from the international community. And so when we look at Hong Kong, I've spoken to students from Hong Kong who are in Canada and really worried about the situation. I participated in a press conference through Amnesty International where there were members from every party. This is a multi-partisan issue in Canada as well. And We've obviously suspended the extradition treaty and quite quickly, but are there other steps that you think Canada ought to look at in the course of responding to China's actions in Hong Kong? Yeah, I mean, there's really two parts to that. And the first thing is, like, I look at this and I'm like, I can't believe the credibility that Xi has burned through, like President Xi and and the Chinese Communist Party have burned through in three to four years, you know, at a time when they really could have... I think taking advantage of people kind of looking at America with, you know, and, and wondering what's happening under President Trump or as, as the US has perhaps taken this unilateralist or even isolationist turn, they really did have an advantage to be this global power that people could have turned to. And they haven't. I mean, it's kind of astonishing. China really doesn't have a lot of what's called soft power. They try to buy things either through Belt and Road, um, this kind of policy they have of development to actually make the world trade kind of advantageous to them. That's like a whole other body. But they really haven't. But in the end, I think what's important, and I think this is important with regards to Hong Kong as well, is that the number one priority for the Chinese Communist Party at all times is its own survival. It has to look strong to its own citizens. And right, it has to be seen as protecting its own citizens. And if it's not, I think they see that as a sign of weakness. As the Canadian analyst sitting in the peanut gallery I always try to say, okay, well, you know, when you're trying to understand their response, is this being done in such a way as to make the Chinese Communist Party look strong? I think there's part of this in Hong Kong, but I also think that, you know, attitude towards the South China Sea in recent years, whether it's building the islands, going so far as to ban movies if they don't show, like, Taiwan is part of China. So I, I think that the same goes for Hong Kong. It's it's unfortunate they were supposed to wait, I believe, up to 50 years. In some ways, I think that was a strategy by the British to hope that China had changed between 1997 and forward, that China would become more democratic. Unfortunately, it, it seems to become increasingly authoritarian under uh, President Xi in recent years. It is extremely unfortunate. I am extremely concerned by what is happening in Hong Kong. This new national security law comes out of this idea that they want to be able to transfer prisoners back to the mainland in order to try them, and that we're talking about a mainland that has a conviction rate of 99% in its courts, so it's not exactly a fair system. Uh, it's, an, it's a way for them to crack down on dissent, to stop publishers from publishing books that are critical of the Chinese Communist Party in Hong Kong. It really is a way to stifle a vibrant place. And it's it's just terrible because it's not just the extradition treaty that we're seeing, although the human rights concerns in Hong Kong need to be paramount, but it's also, you know, we're going to see changes in the way foreign investment is treated in Hong Kong. So it, it may change their status on on certain international financial markets as well. So there's, there's a number of, of, of issues at play. Perhaps Xi just simply thinks that while the world is busy dealing with this pandemic, and, and certainly we are, that this is their opportunity to kind of make a play for some of the things. That, that he really wants. I, I'm not in his head, but certainly anything that makes him look stronger to his own people is an action 
that he is willing to take. And, and that I think we have to see these actions in that light. Then that's a roundabout way of saying, what should Canada do about it? I, I think we've done a lot of the right things so far in the sense of, of the extradition treaty was very important right away. One of the things that frustrates me in Canadian foreign policy discussions is that it seems that the first answer everyone always gives is sanctions. Oh, we should sanction people. I, I think sanctions are an imperfect tool. They might be a bit more effective in the case of China because I think there's a lot more business between China and Canada than, say, Canada and Russia and Canada Iran, where we have used sanctions as well. So they could be effective. Sanctions are a one-time card. We need actually ongoing solutions. We need to be working with our partners. Our voice is always louder when we're working with the international community. And one of the interesting things about China right now is that it is a bipartisan issue in the United States, right? Trump is off on his own little Trump world. But generally speaking, both Republicans and Democrats are looking at China with a certain degree of horror. And so there's an opportunity there to work with the United States, to work with Australia, to work with other like-minded countries on kind of calling out this behavior, on challenging this kind of behavior. One interesting step is going to be whether or not Canada takes a step to provide Hong Kong citizens with Canadian citizenship. Certainly, I believe we have something like 300,000 Canadian citizens already there. That's right who may choose to leave. But we should also make it very clear that we expect our Canadian citizens to be treated well. And this is uh, something we can insist upon with other members of the international community as well. So it, it, it sounds boring, but I think that one of the main answers is actually just diplomacy and working with our allies. The second thing I think would be interesting with regards to human rights perspective on China generally is taking more of an aggressive stance at banning investment in Canada from firms that are associated with surveillance technology in China. That would be difficult because a lot of times these firms are owned by very large state-owned enterprises. But if we took a more aggressive stance on, particularly with regard to the Uyghur issues, which needs so much more attention. There's just all of these camps. Uh, somewhere between one and three million Uyghurs are being detained in, in China as, as we speak. And, you know, banning companies that are involved either using Uyghur slave labor, that are producing technology in order to survey the Uyghur population, in trying to counter that technology or, or not allowing that technology to spread to other countries, which is certainly another concern that we have right now, I think is another important step that we could take. And certainly I think that would also benefit benefit the people of Hong Kong, who are increasingly concerned that they're going to be very much surveyed and monitored in the same way that other dissident populations in China might be. It seemed to me on Hong Kong that in addition to the steps we've taken to date, your point on maybe a more welcoming immigration policy to echo the work of the UK and to partner with our like-minded allies to say, here's one way we can help. We, we aren't there. We aren't on the ground, but we can certainly welcome people who want to flee persecution. It's what we've always done. It's what we continue to do. And it's an action that would be very specific to the Canada-China relationship and to push back a little bit on the Uyghurs, it seems more obviously that a situation like that does call for sanctions on the one hand of officials who are involved in mass atrocities, and then the more targeted approach to companies that will then maybe that pressure pays off because these companies want to do business in Canada, want to do business in other countries. And if, if we not only take action as Canada, but we also do it alongside Australia, the UK, the US. And I don't want to limit even to those countries because I just had a conversation with the high commissioner from 
India to Canada, and they have recently taken action to ban over 50 Chinese companies in India, and, and they are at odds very much with, with China as well. And so there's a real opportunity, the conversation I had there, very much focused on how do we collectively decouple our economies from China, not tomorrow, but over time such that they realize their actions have consequences. Yeah, I would just add to that. If you looked at the speech this past month of Heiko Maas as Germany takes over the EU presidency for the next six months, this is something that's very much on their mind as well. One of the things China is really good at is singling out countries. They don't want the international community or the West to gang up on them and, and do these kinds of things, right? So what they're very good with Huawei technology, they said to Germany, if you ban Huawei, we'll ban German cars. They said to France, if you ban Huawei, we're going to ban your wine import. And in Canada, we had hostage taking uh, when we took action against Huawei. And they've also made various threats about agriculture or canola. Canola yep. gets targeted every single time and it always will be. You know, you see people saying we should just ban all trade with China. We should just stop things. I mean, yes. I mean, but we are talking about a sixth of the world's population. I want us to respond and I want us to respond forcefully, but I want us to respond reasonably. I'm worried that a, like a China that feels like it's trapped in a corner is going to respond in ways that we don't like, perhaps even in a more aggressive way. So I think we have to be thoughtful. I think we have to find meaningful solutions. But you're right. At the end of the day, we have to show that there's consequences for action. And I think you as a parliamentarian have the opportunity to work with like-minded individuals in other legislatures who, who feel this way. And, and certainly it's more and more common. We have, of course, the multipartisan committee in the House of Commons, which at first I was a bit skeptical of because, you know, committees can sometimes be of varying quality. No offense intended. But, um, <laughs> uh, every but offense taken. <laughs> every offense, fair enough, fair enough. You know, is that committee talking to similar committees in, in other jurisdictions? There's now an international group of parliamentarians that has been established that are looking at some of these questions as well. Multilateralism, it's out of fashion and people we kind of grumble about it on Twitter all the time, but actually really is the solution to this case. What we should be doing is trying to rise to China's challenge. I don't think we should be trying to isolate China per se. I think there's a fine difference between those two policies. Ideally, the idea is that you have a less aggressive China, one that wants to be a productive member of the international community that does not resort to either trying to buy influence or kidnap citizens of countries to get what they want. It's impossible to ban trade with China tomorrow in any serious way. I think the focus instead on reducing our economic dependence and doing that in partnership with other countries would make the point that these actions from China are not sustainable in the long term. We're not going to accept them alongside our allies and partners, and we are not going to allow you to weaponize trade. And if you do weaponize trade, we aren't going to trade with you in the same way that we have been in the last number of years. I think there's two solutions there specifically. And one is with regards to Canada. Right now, we do have a policy where if there is an investment by a state-owned enterprise, it goes through something called the Investment Canada Act process, which is a kind of opaque act. But these things are assessed for national security. And one of the things that I would push for is changes that if a state will take hostages on behalf of a company, then maybe we need to say no to investment from those companies so long as there's active risk to Canadians abroad. That would be the first solution to me is like, you know, if if you're going to take hostages, we can't trade or we can't allow your foreign investment because it's just too much of a risk to our own citizens. And then the second thing here, which I think is really important and something we saw in the 2019 budget, which is uh, money to be spent on educating individuals, but particularly business 
and universities on relations with China. I mean, a lot of times for business, money is money is money. That's just capitalism for you, as it were. For a lot of times, we're, we're not critically thinking about what seems like a good deal today, $10 million for research, a joint venture in China that gives Canadian companies access may cost us billions in the long run through stolen intellectual property, through deals that fall through, and through an opaque Chinese legal system, which can often capture a lot of the business that you are sending over there, leaving the Canadian company with very little. In the last month at the industry committee, we heard a lot of testimony on state-owned enterprises, often implicit, sometimes explicit references to China. And the general sense I got from the witness testimony was there's a policy direction in April that encourages enhanced scrutiny for acquisitions in the course of this pandemic, especially as it relates to state-owned enterprises, especially as it relates to core aspects of pandemic response in some ways or core strategic industries. And it's quite a vague policy direction in some respects. And so the evidence we heard was flesh that out in greater detail. Other countries do a better job of really, in a more granular way, setting out the strategic industries and, and what we are going to protect and, and why we are going to protect them as against state-owned enterprises to say, yes, we're open to investment, but not all investment in these areas because we don't want to put our country at a national security risk and national security in a, in a broad sense. The other piece that we heard in one meeting was from CSIS and the RCMP. And CSIS specifically had highlighted the increased risk to universities, not as you describe the capture where there's investment and they're trying to capture whether it be research or business interests in a more direct way, but this was in malicious cyber hacking and universities should be on guard was the message from CSIS. And as a country, if you take action in the offline world, it's incredibly offensive and, and countries will respond with force in some cases, but those same actions done online in malicious hacking and cyber theft, we don't shrug our shoulders exactly as a, as a country, but we, we do let them get away with it. So I'm at the tail end of a project right now, which is looking at the policies of 10 countries with regards to cyber diplomacy. And what we're trying to evaluate is just this question of what happens in the aftermath of a malicious cyber attack? How do states respond? And is it effective? It's interesting. For years and years and years, we did not call out China, but increasingly we have done so. One of the things that I think the United States does that's really interesting, and unlike other countries, is they actually indict officials. The FBI will actually indict. They figure out who is the general responsible for a certain program, and they will indict them. I mean, maybe they never get caught, but China hates that too. And so I, I sometimes wonder if Canada could take a, a more aggressive stance in terms of actually indicting officials or partnering with other countries who are more willing to in, indict officials in some ways. It is interesting that under the Obama administration, there was a number of very serious hacks by China in the aftermath of that, as well as in the aftermath of uh, a number of hacks against private companies, the Obama administration indicted four generals. So there was an agreement where actually they said, we won't target each other's private sector anymore. You can still target the government. That's still a fair game uh, in, in a number of ways. So these agreements have in the past had some effect. Now, I suspect under the Trump administration and in this coronavirus world where there's just so much of a race for a vaccine and to trying to figure out what countries are doing, I suspect that has gone the other way. But what we need when it comes to China is a range of tools 
There isn't one tool. And this is why I sometimes get frustrated because it just feels like we have the sanctions hammer. We need diplomacy. We need allied multilateral efforts. We do need sanctions, absolutely, as we talked about with regards to the Uyghurs. I think for Canada... We have spent so long thinking the government shouldn't be involved in the economy. This has been our mantra since the 1970s, that the government needs to get out of the economy. And all of a sudden, we're realizing we have to get back in, that our economy is actually a a tool and a target of of statecraft. And we have to manage that without actually damaging our, our economic prospects. But it is a tool that we can add to our foreign policy toolkit. And so if we take this range of tools and develop a comprehensive strategy, I think that would be useful. In China's defense, and I don't like it, but let's like, you know, we'll, give, we'll close give the with the defense of China. China. <laughs> but, well, you know, let, let's give the devil his due. Canada's policy towards China has flipped and flopped over two decades, right? It's very, very warm, and then it's very, very cold, and then very, very warm, and then very, very cold. And this isn't just a liberal thing or a conservative thing. It's all parties kind of start off wanting a good relations with China and often end up with bad relations with China. And then a new government comes in and they have good relations with China, and then it turns bad. And so I think China, to, in, to a certain extent, is a little bit confused. And we need to develop a coherent understanding of what our interests with China are. We need a clear-eyed view of what the threats of China are. And I would say there it's traditional espionage, economic espionage, and various clandestine foreign influence campaigns. And we need to kind of figure out what all that means and then what tools to use to basically achieve what we want. It's not easy to do in practice. I don't envy the the fabulous people over at Global Affairs Canada or yourselves in Parliament kind of muddle through some of these issues, but this is where we need to go. One of the things that does concern me that I have seen is the rise of racist attacks against Chinese Canadians. And one of the things we do have to keep separate here is that the Chinese Canadian community is not homogeneous. There's a variety of views. Some are very pro-Beijing, some are very anti-Beijing. And under our laws, you can have those views. Aside from the human rights concerns that of, of the well-being of, of these Canadian citizens, we have to empathize with them. We have to stand strong with the Chinese community and in making sure they're free from foreign influence activities. It only makes Canada stronger if we can stand with those victims and the, the, the community itself going forward. Any response certainly has to be consistent with our underlying values. And any violent response in that way or any racist response in that way is completely unacceptable. I I worry, too, you mentioned finding the areas that we can work together on. And I look at the investments on climate that China has been willing to undertake internationally. But it's frustrating when you see some shared priorities on big issues like that that are ultimately undermined and the possibility of cooperation is undermined because of such a belligerent foreign policy. And I do worry in some ways that there's a real missed opportunity. I want the two Michaels home. I want human rights respected, regardless of of one's religious background and one's ethnic background in China. I want them to respect international law in Hong Kong. It's frustrating for a country that could do so much good. I really think for the foreseeable future, at least, we've lost that possibility of working together. You know, I agree with you in the end. You know, climate change, ending poverty, developing comprehensive solutions to this uh, coronavirus pandemic 
it would really be useful to have a solid international partner in China. And that's not the route they seem to be taking at this time. We can only hope that through smart diplomacy, through other actions that we, we can eventually get there. I mean, I hate the Cold War analogy, but even during the Cold War, there was cooperation between the United States and the USSR on certain issues. And sanctions are easy, but the real long-term answer is to double down on multilateralism. Multilateralism and a little bit of strategic thinking, which in Canada is maybe not our forte, but it's going to have to be. Although we got some of that from you, at least, over the course of the conversation. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a crazy person living in Oshawa in my parents' basement. So <laughs> it's, it's only the best advice you're getting here on the podcast. <laughs> and with that, I I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, well, my pleasure. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Uncommons. Remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes and recommend future guests and topics on social media at BYNate.